Joy strength is actually related to brain development. And so what we're going to talk about today, though it might at first seem kind of disconnected to you, is how your brain is actually related to the degree of joy strength that we have as individuals. Every one of us has a capacity or a limit or an ability of how much joy we can possess. And we also have a limit based on how much joy we possess and how much difficulty or trouble we can endure and still maintain our sense of self and function as though we were a, a sort of a unified human being. Now, that may not make exactly a lot of uh, sense to you right now. So what I'm going to end up doing to you is flooding you with a lot of different information, which I hope I'll make interesting and cogent. And then as we get the information laid out there, we're going to weave it back together. The interesting uh, aspect of all of this is that uh, the information I'm teaching you now has only been available to us in about the last five years. And these are based on relatively new developments in the area of brain imaging. Brain imaging is the, the computerized study of the brain under a variety of different conditions that can tell you what is actually going on in various points in the brain while other activities are taking place. Up until that time, we had no idea of what part of the brain was involved in, in what. We could take a part of the brain by uh, dissecting it, but of course you are going to learn very little about how a person ticks from that. You might learn a little bit about the structure of the brain, but you won't learn very much about the individual. Well, these brain imaging studies have let us at long last begin to put together uh, information from a variety of different sources. And there's one man in particular, Dr. Alan Shore uh, from UCLA, who has spent many years putting all of this together. And I thank him very much for that because I would never ever have uh, spent the time to do it. Uh, and he's collected information from a whole variety of different fields that have never been combined. And his research is the basis on which uh, a lot of this presentation is made. Uh, so I'm, I'm thankful to him and for the uh, effort that has been made to do really some outstanding scholarship. He's been called the Einstein of psychiatry, and probably appropriately so. Now, uh, when I came to understand or get this information uh, was, was a couple of years ago, and we were developing what is called the life model of, of uh, redemption and maturity in our center, which is the Shepherd's House in, in California. We were trying to look for a model that was deeply biblical for how people were to grow and mature and heal. We were tired of, of being uh, uh, psychologists who were Christian in the same sense that you get a Christian dentist, you know, and, and they do the same thing any other dentist does that just happened to be a Christian that's doing it. We were looking for something that went beyond that. And uh, in the middle of doing that, we began to describe what we could see from our own experience, what we could see from the Word of God. And we disco discovered that, uh, especially dealing in the lives of people who are deeply wounded, that they only healed in community. And that the only kind of community that really helped them to heal was community that had deep bonds of love, where the people and the individuals were connected by love, not by fear. Most of these individuals had grown up in communities where people dealt with each other on the basis of fear. 
And uh, this was a major shift that had to take place in their minds. And we found that uh, their brains did not change real quickly from one way of operating to the other. And in the middle of all of this, a brochure came across my desk from the, uh, a psychoanalytic conference down in Newport Beach, which is the last place in the world I'd ever go. I get all these brochures, I throw them away. But somehow or another, I picked this one up, I opened it up, and it said something about the neuropsychobiology of bonds. And I said, somebody's got to go and hear that. Well, none of us could go except for one intern, so we sent that poor intern down there to listen to this lecture. And the, the intern came back, uh, having not understood the lecture particularly, except to say, I think this guy's saying the same things we are, uh, and he's got all this good neuroscience, and I brought the, the tapes back. So we sat and listened to the tapes. And uh, I would play the tape li literally one sentence at a time and stop and figure out word by word what that man had said. And when I'd patch all the words together, I'd go, oh, that's what he said. And it began to make sense. Well, uh, the more sense it made to me, the more excited I got about it. And I thought, this is just matching everything that we've seen in scripture and experience and, and what we have been writing about, only now he's saying, this is the part of the brain that's doing it when you're observing this or that. And it felt like God had brought all of this together. It was very exciting. And, and for me, it's a, a real point of joy, actually, to be able to share that with you. So what I've done, though, is to try to turn this into something that resembles plain and simple English. And in doing that, we've left out a lot of the terms, a lot of the citations, and, and that kind of thing. So if, you, if some of you afterwards really like that scientific stuff and you want to know where all the citations and the research and all those sorts of things are, I can point you to where that is, but I'm not going to do that today. We're just going to talk about it as though we're interested in the subject. Well, the first thing that was found was that the part of the brain that was involved in bonding or attachment was developing uh, in response to stimulation. Uh, some of you have uh, seen the studies where ducks are bonded or attached to somebody and afterwards they will follow them along. Well, what was found, of course, is human beings don't act like ducks, but we also have a time in our lives early on where we do bond and attach to people. And that bonding has the interesting effect of making us learn to be like them. And while this is going on, a particular part of the brain is developing. And bonding can be based on whichever part of the brain is developing at that time. Uh, the first part, the first part of life, the first six weeks around them, bonding, their senses have to be working. And the senses that have developed in the brain, and, and that to the degree that they can work, uh, are described as being myelinated. Now that's one of the few technical terms I'll throw in here. But basically, that means that that part of the brain has been hardwired or insulated into place. So once that has been done, the myelinization has taken place, that part of the brain is essentially set and it's working in order. It's sort of like up until then, all the nerves in your brain are like a bowl full of spaghetti and they're just all tossed in there. And wherever they happen to cross and touch, they can spark back and forth and send signals any which way. And so the signals that you get are very clouded and uncertain. But when it's myelinated, every one of those little nerves gets insulated with a little layer of fat called myelinin, which is, that's why they gave it that fancy name. 
and that insulation keeps those signals from jumping back and forth and the signals become clear. Well, children are born with their sense of smell developed. It's ready. So the first way of bonding is by smell. And they can bond to the smell of their mothers. Uh, and that becomes very, very important to early bonding process. They also bond by the sense of taste, the food that they're given. And most importantly, in terms of interaction, they bond by temperature. Babies are learning how to keep their bodies the right temperature. It's very hard for them to do at first, and they bond to whoever helps keep them the right temperature. And you'll see babies, mothers of newborn babies spend a lot of time, you know, bundling them and unbundling them and making sure that they keep the right temperature. It's a, it's a job for two, and that begins to develop the bond. At six weeks, though, the touch centers of the brain myelinate. They're ready, and now you can begin to distinguish where touch is coming from. Up until then, it's hard to know where you're being touched, but from that point on, the brain knows where you're being touched and how. And so touch becomes the next important center of bonding. And the reason that it develops a bond is because touch, just like smell and taste and temperature regulation, all produce a sense of gladness or joy in the, in the young glance child. glance is now focused. It, you know the baby is looking at you and seeing what's going on because they're getting a clear picture. And at that point in time, babies are very, very interested in looking at the faces of people around them. And that's what they're most interested in. Their little brains go right away to looking at faces. And the faces, they like best of all to look at the left side of the face. And of anything on the left side of the face, what they like to look at most is the eye. So given a chance to look at the left eye of the face. And what they're looking for in the left eye on your face is the look of someone who's pleased to be with them. And so during these next months between uh, six, I mean three months of age and 12 months of age, mothers and babies allowed to do so will spend up to eight hours a day smiling at each other and developing a sense of a strong bond. At 12 months of age, the auditory centers myelinate, and from that point you can hear sounds clearly and begin to distinguish what they are. That helps you eventually develop speech, but what it listens to particularly at that point is voice tone. And again, the little baby's brain the is right side listening, of the brain, whereas words are interpreted on the left side of the brain. Have any, any of you ever been in a discussion with someone, probably your spouse, and they said it wasn't what you said, it was the tone of your voice? Well, they are suggesting to you that that voice tone of yours did not communicate, I'm glad to be with you. And that is an entirely separate message from the content of whatever you were saying. Different parts of the brain interpreting the message. That's what babies are listening for at this point. And bonding is based on vo voice tone. When they hear that tone that says, I'm glad to be with you, that is what a baby responds to. Well, what is created at that point is a sense of excitement or joy, as the neurologists call it. Now, it just blesses me no end when neurologists cannot settle on a better word for something than joy. But uh, crusty neurologists have gone so far as to say that what's essential for a child's development is that they be the sparkle in someone's eye. They be the source of joy. And that this joy is the only thing that motivates 
children under the age of a year of age to do something. This is their, the only thing that they will seek on their own is joy. There's other things they may avoid, but the only thing they will seek is things that produce joy. And joy, as far as your nervous system is concerned, means someone is glad to be with me. And either their face or their voice tone tells me that. Well, this information is exchanged between uh, the mother and child, and I'll just use mother and child because it can be father, but it's the adult person with the child, by, by uh, really direct and fast communication that happens from one right person's hemisphere to the other person's right hemisphere. And what we might as well get clear right now is that the communication paths between us that occur at all times are simultaneously on two levels. One is what you're doing now and listening to my words and then that doing that my left hemisphere is talking to your left left hemisphere and you're following those words um, hopefully that's one set of communication on the other hand your right hemisphere and my right hemisphere are to some degree communicating as well and it's more likely a little bit one way unless I happen to stop and look at your face and you're getting that information from me based on my voice tone and by the look on my face, which at this point is a relatively bored look on my face. So you're not getting an awful lot of input from that side. But as I see you smiling and I'm smiling back at you, we are beginning to exchange information that says at some level, I'm glad to be with you. Now the interesting thing about that is the way this system has been set up by God in a little infant undeveloped brain their experience of a face looking at them is so powerful that their brain will begin to duplicate the exact emotion that is being felt by the face that they're looking at. Now all of us have a little bit of that. If we look at, have someone look at us and they're looking really mad at us, our brain sort of immediately registers something and we like feel mad right back. Well, this is a stronger version of that. And the result of that is that because the brain chemistry is matched, the little child begins to feel and experience exactly the same brain chemistry, the neurological chemistry that's going on in the brain that they're looking at. This set of, of signals and chemistry then configures the way that their brain grows so that it, they begin to grow a brain structure that is similar to the brain that's looking at them. In other words, if the person that they're looking at has a great deal of joy present, their brain structures connected to joy will begin to grow and expand and they'll have a large joy structure as well. If their face they're looking at has a great deal of anger on it, their brain structure connected with anger will begin to grow and they'll begin to have a large brain structure connected with anger. If the person that they're looking at is depressed, they will begin to develop brain chemistry similar to the depressed person, which would mean that all of the little serotonin receptors that are supposed to be developing are then actually snipped off by the brain, disconnected, they're erased out of the brain so that the brain comes to be configured like the brain that they're looking at. And this communication between the child and the adult 
is not only this powerful, but it's extremely fast. The expression on someone else's face will register in the child's brain within 40 milliseconds, which is roughly the amount of time it takes for one brain cell to fire. And a complete cycle of communication from one, left hem one right so hemisphere to another, what we have is very, very fast. Emotional communication that can actually synchronize brains on the right side uh, to the same emotional state. And whatever these synchronizations are, determine the development of the young immature brain. Thank you for that smile. I just charged my joy center right there. Now, what is it that's growing at the time that all of this is going on? This, this is what the brain scan has now shown us. And that what means is growing it's on the right side of the brain. We're looking up from underneath. So this is, uh, you know, the problem with that is that the right side of the brain is actually on the left side of the screen because uh, you're looking from underneath the brain. Uh, yes? Uh, it can be raised up. The problem with that is it goes out of focus if it gets raised up. So um, uh, let's see. Don't know how to solve that problem. Thanks. Uh, it, it, you can? All right. Well, put it, up, put it up. I was unable to focus the top part, but if you can do so, please do. Um, while you're entertaining yourself with that, I'm going to go back to the right orbital prefrontal cortex. Yes? The questions? Okay. I'll repeat the questions. The questions is, can the picture be raised? <laughs> the... the uh, I'm an obedient person in a way. The, uh, <laughs> they got healing for that? Yes, he says. Okay. The right orbital prefrontal cortex is on the right side of the brain, and it's called orbital because it's right behind the orbit or socket of the eye. So it's on the right, behind the socket of the eye. Prefrontal cortex because it is before the front, prefrontal. So it isn't all the way to the front of the brain, it's a little ways back, uh, kind of back there where that groove in the top comes down to, that's a little bit before the front. And cortex because it's on the outside of the brain. So we're talking about a part of the brain that's on the outside, towards the front, and right behind the eyes. That's real clever when you get all that science done, isn't it? Now, the prefrontal cortex of the brain is interesting because you are essentially born without it. There isn't anything there developed at the time that you're born. Most of it grows between the time when you are born and 18 months of age. And it comes to become 35% of the adult brain. And how it grows is directly related to the kind of stimulation or interaction it gets. Now this is even more dramatic than just the kind of stimulation it gets because some of it will grow anyway without stimulation, but the brain will remove whatever part of it isn't used. So that even though it grows, if someone does not stimulate it and use it, the brain will automatically go in and trim it off because it wasn't essential, wasn't used. So even what your, neurolog your genes would allow you to grow, if it is not used during this period of time when its growth is going on, it will be removed. And great lacks 
of brain cells in the area of the orbital prefrontal cortex have been found in conditions such as depression, uh, attention deficit disorder, uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, dissociative disorders, did I mention depression, uh, autism, and uh, almost, if you start going down the list, almost all of the psychi psychiatric disorders have as an undercurrent that this part of the brain is undeveloped or underdeveloped. Now there's some very interesting things about this part. It has several growth spurts. The first one is in the first 18 months of life with the highest rate of growth occurring at nine months. For years it's been known that bonding at each other and the smiling back and forth stimulates enormous growth in this part of the brain. Uh, I should stop here to just make a parenthetical comment. Uh, this growth begins at about three months is when it really begins to accelerate, which is about the time that most mothers go back to work after having their children and put them in daycare. Also, it would seem that the group of children that have been raised in daycare are showing enormous amounts of attention deficit disorder. I don't know if that's related. Um, I have a strong bias. <laughs> the next growth spurt happens between three to five years of age with the peak about four years of age. Uh, this is about the time of normal development when children are beginning to uh, take care of themselves, go out in the world, and where a strong attachment to father First time that any of you would actually remember having a growth spurt in this part of your brain. Some of you may perhaps remember something that we call puppy love or the first time you fell in love. This is a bonding experience, and what you began to feel at that time, that euphoria, that giddy look, and wanting to look into somebody else's eyes, and all you could do is think about them, and you just wanted to be near them, and it, when you did, you just felt so wonderful that you thought you didn't have to walk on the ground. This is what growth of the orbital prefrontal cortex feels like for the infant. You can now remember what it's like. And so that sense of euphoria, of bonding, falling in love, that is joy. That is what we're talking about when we're joy. Someone is glad to be with me. This happens again when uh, the birth of the first child occurs. This is especially true for the mother whose uh, biochemistry, as she is going through gestation, actually prepares her for another growth spurt at this time. So she's just all set for bonding. And then um, it also happens very often at the, uh, another peak with the first grandchild. Interestingly enough, while most of the brain does myelinate and stop its potential for growth, the orbital prefrontal cortex in the area related to joy and bonding re retains fetal biochemistry throughout your whole life. In other words, it's in the same readiness to grow as it was before you were born. So it's one of the few parts of the brain that you can actually stimulate and still grow new brain cells and new brain, brain structures throughout your life. This is very, very interesting for us who want to talk about the deficits of joy early on in life. Now, the bad news of that is that there are certain parts of this orbital prefrontal cortex that can't be regrown. But the parts related to bonding and joy can. But we'll look at a little bit of that as we're going along. The look at this picture of the brain over here. This is the side view taken down the center of the brain. 
you see where there's that kind of shelf coming in from the front. The front is the side towards me. Uh, right under that is where the eyes would be. And the orbital prefrontal cortex is that area that uh, is right above that, that little frontal shelf right above where it says pituitary gland uh, on the brain. Right in there, you have a convergent center of the brain. That is, at this point, information from all over the brain is converging in one spot, which makes this very important. It is the first part of your cortex that will receive information from outside or inside your body. In other words, it's the first part of you that will know about anything consciously. So any information of how your body is doing or how the world is doing shows up here which means it's also the center for dealing with all of the input, sensory input that we receive. So you want to know how you're reacting to something, the first part of your conscious mind to know it is going to be right here at this part of the brain. It's also the control apex of the brain. That is, it's at the top of the command hierarchy. Different nerve centers have the capacity to shut down other ones when they don't want them around. This, this one is the command post. This center of the brain has the capacity to talk with all of the other parts of your brain. It uh, has the only part of the conscious brain that can deal with your immune system. It deals with your pain control. It deals with your uh, internal neurotransmitters. Uh, this part, uh, when it grows, will grow all of your, uh, the majority of your serotonin receptors, and those are the ones that regulate our, our level of depression. So if it is stimulated when you're young, you grow lots and lots of serotonin receptors. And consequently, if you ever get in a situation which might be depressing, you have lots and lots of chemical reserve within the brain to function with. But if th that area doesn't grow, then you have relatively little to back you up. You have little nervous energy strength uh, to deal with depression when it comes along. You'll be easily susceptible to it. That unfortunately is one of the parts of the, of the senator that is largely determined within those first 18 months. So regrowing that is um, at this point seems to be um, sort of out of the question. There's some evidence that you can do some growth but certainly not, not a whole lot. Also regulating your immune system. It, it, uh, it monitors your blood pressure. It monitors what's going on inside your body with all of your uh, organ systems, your heart rate, and, and keeps an eye on how you are doing as a physical being as well as all the information coming from the outside. And it is also the part of the brain that regulates your emotions because your emotions are very tied to how you're doing as your body, uh, as a physical being. And so this is the part of your brain that actually has something to say about how you control your emotions. Your capacity to do, uh, basically to act like yourself while you're in an emotional state resides right here. And this is very, very important because uh, what we are looking for in a mature and healthy individual is that they can act like themselves under stress. So if you get upset, you act like the same person you were when you weren't upset. If you're angry, you act like the same person you were when you weren't angry. If you're afraid, you act like the same person you were when you weren't afraid. If you become sexually aroused, you act like the same person you were when you weren't. Those emotional regulations that we really uh, hope for in each other 
all reside in this part of the brain. And so the strength of this part of the brain, the orbital prefrontal cortex, limits our capacity to regulate these things. And most of what we see with people who come for counseling is that they have a great deal of difficulty in regulating all of these emotions. This is directly attributable to, in many cases, a lack of joy. Or at least a lack of... We'll no longer be talking about the limbic system. But since they are at the moment, we'll talk about it now. And ideas come and go in, in medicine, as we heard this morning. The limbic system is one that I think is on its way out because no one can exactly decide where it starts and stops. And when you have a concept like that that no one can really define, you know that it's only a matter of time until someone gives up on it. But from what we do know about this uh, center of the brain uh, that they're currently calling the limbic system is that it's the drive center. And um, it's, it holds the drive center for fear or, or terror, two words for the same thing, it's the center for um, anger or rage, two words for the same thing. Uh, it's the cent center for our drive to eat and our sexual drive, all of which can get out of control in, in certain individuals and under certain conditions. The orbital prefrontal cortex is the only part of the brain that has the capacity to override those drives. So the capacity to deal with those aspects of our lives is directly regulated by how well developed we have uh, our right orbital prefrontal cortex. Now the interesting thing about that is all of those drives are very closely related to a lot of things that we consider moral issues. And so we're not far away from talking about aspects of our brain that influence impact strongly on what we would uh, look at as moral issues and, and morally directed behavior. And the strengths with which we approach these, and we've watched, no doubt, that various people have very differing amounts of uh, control over those aspects of their lives, is related directly back to the development based on joy. Well, the right orbital prefrontal cortex has a few other characteristics that would be interesting for you. The first is that it's nonverbal. It's on the right side of the brain, and it is almost fully developed by the time that a child has a vocabulary of 15 words. Its growth is basically over. And it's on the side of your brain that isn't concerned with words particularly anyway. So its growth and its way of self-regulating and it remembers more than anything else the images of faces. And so it would be not incorrect to say that how we remember in this part of the brain and interact is based on what we have seen, not on what we have heard. And it's based on what we've experienced, not what we have been taught in the usual sense. This is experience-based learning on this side. It is also the center for self and for bonds. If you wanted to know which part of your brain thinks of itself as me, it's the right orbital prefrontal cortex. So, in that sense, you are right here behind your eye. Uh, and the, in, the picture you have of yourself neurologically is very interesting. It's been documented thus far that it's at least the picture of two faces looking at each other. And we have theoretical reason to believe that it's actually essential that there be three faces in there. And I'm not going to go into the discussion between two-phase theory and three-phase theory. But 
to say that I, I'm convinced that for the, uh, our brain to operate correctly, we are actually three faces looking at each other. And what our brain understands us to be is what we see in the face of the one looking at us. So our identity really is what I have been seen and mirrored to me is what, who I know myself to be. And this interaction of these three faces looking at each other, if it's based on joy, three faces glad to be with each other that are always in harmony and in joy, uh, we have a strong and stable personality. If for some reason we only have two faces, we have a very unbalanced personality. And if these faces are not looking at each other with joy, then what we have is a personality that can never be stabilized. Because no matter what you look at, one part of you isn't happy with what the rest of you is doing. And it's a constantly unstable emotional environment. So the creation of these faces inside the, the mind becomes very crucial to what we are talking about as us. It's interesting to me, uh, at least speculatively, of why this we might be a trinity inside. If, in fact, we are created in God's image, it would probably, no doubt, amuse God to have created us also within ourselves as a little trinity that should be an eternal fellowship of joy with one another, which is, in fact, what we experience in terms of worship between God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're an eternal, joyful fellowship, the three with each other. And we as a church have been invited right into the very center of that joyful fellowship. And that's where we are to spend eternity, watching this external exchange of joy. It doesn't surprise me then that we are at our basis creatures of joy. This is what we are designed for. This is the only way in which we function correctly. And it's not joy alone, but joy in the presence of others who rejoice with us and regard us face to face. You want an interesting study in scripture you might want to go and study the, the scriptures on God's face. And you'll notice that at the beginning of the Old Testament, where man and God could see each other face to face and there was fellowship, there was great joy. And the first thing that happens after that is that they can no longer behold God's face. By the time Moses comes along, he asks to see God's face, and God says, no, if you saw my face, it would kill you. You ask why? I personally think that even at a biological level, I know the answer. He hadn't enough joy. To enter into the experience of that level of joy would overwhelm his capacity, and it would just wipe out his brain. We hadn't that capacity. At the end of the book of Revelation, you return to see the face of God. Now we're seeing dimly as through a glass. But at the end of the revelation, God's face each other. is back. Way down at the bottom of that brain, uh, kind of right in the center of all of those squiggly marks there in the brain, you just threw a dart right in the middle of that, uh, there's a section of the deep limbic system that's about the size of a walnut, and it's involved in attachment. It's your attachment circuit. It works a rather a lot like your thirst circuit. And you know your thirst circuit works like uh, because your mouth starts feeling like you're thirsty, and pretty soon you'll get something to drink. But you don't just keep drinking forever. After a while, something in your brain says, that's enough, put it down, and it switches the circuit off. And our attachment circuit is that way. Our attachment circuit looks for someone who wants to be with us, and when it's experienced that, 
in return. It says, that's good, now I'm ready to go on my way. And so you begin to look at the aspects of what an atta a healthy attachment looks like. It has that, that aspect to it. I'm going to try to illustrate it here with these little lights. Suppose that this is your attachment circuit here as a, as a little child. You now have your attachment light on, and you begin to signal that you want somebody to attach to you. If there is an adult around who is in tune with what you're doing, they will turn on their attachment circuit and the two of you will move together. And when that happens, after a little bit, the child says, oh, I'm satisfied, turns off their attachment circuit, and the adult responds by turning theirs off, and the two go on their way. And then when the child again wants to be attached, their circuit comes back on, someone's paying attention, the adult's attachment circuit goes, oh, there's my baby, and you get together, the baby goes, oh, this feels good, and then they want to go to sleep, they want to just crawl off, do whatever they want to do, but they are securely attached. There is a harmony there. Someone is paying attention to me. Insecure attachments are when something goes wrong with that nice balance between the two people, and what that does is it produces an imbalanced picture of faces inside the Quests mind. to be attached are basically ignored by the adult so that they ne they're never noticed. They say things like, oh, children are just a bother, or they like to cry, or uh, just be quiet, or they'll stuff a pacifier in their mouth, uh, or feed them food, or do something other than what the child needs. And so the child, instead of continuing to have their attachment light on, begins to leave it off, just like the adults is always off. Because to have your attachment light on and have no one pay attention is one of the most painful events that a human being can experience. To love and not be loved in return is about as hard as it gets. And so for children, when there's no face to notice them, they begin to try to leave their attachment light off. Now, they're not entirely successful, because while on the outside, they appear to have switched it off. If you could monitor their heart rate and things that are going on deep inside of them, they are still responding very strongly. But these are the children who, if you put them down in a room uh, at about 18 months of age, and the parents leave, don't pay any attention that the parents went away. And when the parents come back in the room, the children don't look up, they continue to play. They're the ones who, if you drop them off at daycare, don't fuss. If you leave them in the Sunday school room, they're just fine. They don't pay any attention to it. The parents can come or go. They make no response to it because they're not anticipating anybody is going to be glad to be with them anyway. So why let it? Interestingly enough, these children learn to have their attachment circuits always off, show strong dissociative signal, uh, symptoms up until age 12. And so they begin to act as though they were different people up until age 12. At age 12, when your ability, your intellectual ability, begins to fully develop, they begin to cover that up with a unified uh, exterior. And uh, from that point on, they act fairly normally, except for one aspect. They never really pay attention to what is going on with other people. So they're always missing when somebody else is feeling something. They're detached. They're sort of indifferent. Uh, if you happen to want to uh, uh, spend time with them, they, they don't really notice what you want. I remember one woman whose husband had this pattern, and uh, he would come home and spend the evening uh, sitting in front of his computer, you know, doing the email thing. And uh, she would say, well, I want you to spend time with me. And he said, what? Spend time with you? I'm home all evening. I'm spending time with you. What else do you want? And he'd go back to his computer, because that's very dismissive, by the way. And it caused her great pain. 
And uh, whenever her light was on, he had nothing to say about it. He never even noticed. And this is the adult uh, who has been de developed this attachment, so I can't make them more helpful at this point. The ambivalent child always has their light on. And the reason they do that is because they have a distracted parent. Their parent is interested or paying attention to something other than the child. And so whenever they do happen to notice the child, they say, oh, there's my baby, and they come running over to spend time with the child. And then uh, when the parent has had enough, they go away. And it's based entirely on the parent's needs, not on the child's need. Now, the most often source of this is not as you would expect uh, from negative emotions. It actually comes from positive emotions. Uh, I was happening to watch that little boy from uh, Cuba that you know washed up on our shores. And uh, one of the little TV moments with him, he's walking along as calmly as can be, and some adult sees him there and comes running up to him and gives him a hug. And the little boy startled out of his skin, and he looks around to see what was going on. The adult was responding to him as though he had his attachment laid on, which he didn't. And he didn't know what to do with it. He was totally confused by that. This wasn't a moment. This was not a request from them. It had nothing to do with him. It was a made-for-TV moment, uh, not related to his needs at all. And parents who have these little made-for-TV moments, you see it's time. I'm home. We'll bond and attach right now, so let's go. Uh, produce this kind of attachment actually through largely what we'd consider positive behaviors because the two faces are not synchronized with each other. In this situation, the child leaves their light on and they are not soothed by being by the parent, so they cling and hold on and they don't want to let go when the parent is getting ready to leave and they, they will actually not be soothed by the interaction. Uh, and eventually they become what some people call a parentified child. That is, they begin to take care of the parent's feelings instead of the other way around. Another way that this, uh, this distraction can happen, however, is when the parent is dealing with unresolved grief. So that the parent is actually upset about something from their own past. Uh, their husband left them, their father died, they had problems from their own childhood that are left over. And so they are distracted and they're paying attention to their own emo emotions and not tracking the child and the child's needs. And this pattern is very, very, very common. Uh, the third form of insecure attachment, and you can be a scary parent one of two ways. You can either be a scary parent because you get mad at your child and yell at them and do things to scare them, or you can be a scary parent because you yourself are afraid. So when the child tries to get close to the parent, the closer they get, the more they pick up on this right hemisphere. So you get to the person who you're supposed to get comfort with, it becomes totally disorganizing because how do you solve a problem like that? How do you get close to somebody when the closer you get to them, the scarier it gets, and instead of comforting you, they produce exactly the opposite? This is the group that is most commonly found in post-traumatic stress disorder associative disorders. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, treatment and it's also the groups that uh, inevitably have some degree of de demonization involved in because dealing with scary people and uh, worlds that are scary people 
is almost inevitably an invitation for the scariest beings in the universe to show up and appropriate that opportunity to get involved. Particularly since the child knows they have to bond with someone who's scary anyway. And this is a perfect setup. I'm scary, but you can bond with me. I will be your friend. I will be with you. Or I will torment you if you don't stay close to me, which is another parental message that comes. All of these are the enemy's thinking in a child's life. Well, the characteristics of a healthy bond, if we were to put all of this together then, uh, are the following, and that's taken out of this book here, uh, paid commercial announcement here, The Red Dragon Cast Down, which is a redemptive response or approach to the occult and Satanism. Uh, it's a book in which we have tried to develop the the whole issue of how do we heal as a community and deal with Satan and the occult from the point of view of a joyful Christian community. And so that's a, a, a direct, what I say, a, a direct community approach to trying to deal with evil, not as fragmented individuals, but as a joyful Christian unity. Now, the list that I'm taking is from that book, so if you want a more in-depth analysis, I'm referring you And then when there. you've had enough, you move apart. And so when you move apart, you actually incorporate the other person into yourself. So we find that God comes and moves close to us. He sends Jesus to earth, and then he goes away. And once he goes away, we begin to incorporate him into our hearts. I act more like my mother... Uh, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of my myself. My mother taught me how to bake, bake cookies with her. And when I'd bake those cookies with her, uh, I learned to bake them the way that she did. But it was only when she went away on a trip, and I wanted to bake cookies for my mom when she got back, that I really had to bake them the way my mother did. I had to go and figure out which containers you got out and which way order you put them in and where that recipe file was and clean it all up and put it away, all those things my mother used to do but she wasn't there to do it. So at that point, I become much more like my mother than I was when she was there with me. So a healthy bond is formed both by the absence and the presence of the person. You have a better chance of acting like yourself, and the person that you're dealing with will model that for you. They'll say, here's what people like us do when we're feeling this way. And so it's in that presence of some people who, all, who already knows how to act like themselves that we learn to act like ourselves. Uh, healthy bonds provide both freedom and connection so that you can move apart and still feel connected or you can be close and feel connected. Unhealthy bonds tend to have one or the other. That is, I only feel good around you if I'm not around you at all. Or I only feel good around you as long as I'm holding onto your hands and I'm as close as possible. To say that if we have a healthy bond with God, He's going to be perennially and always stretching our limits to slightly more than we can actually handle in order to promote growth. He goes to slightly more than we can handle, not extremely more than we can handle in these areas where he's promoting growth. He may be promoting brokenness, which is a different theory entirely, but in the areas where God is promoting growth, he will stretch us, continue to stretch us. It will be a little bit more than we can handle each time. This is a healthy bond because he's endeavoring to help us grow into an area which we are not used to. I resent that. <laughs> now, the development of identity in infants is related to this part of the, the brain that we're talking about, the right orbital prefrontal cortex. 
In other the, words, mindsight is what lets us look at someone else and know what they're thinking. So as I'm looking at your faces, I am myself thinking I know what they're thinking when they're looking at me to some degree. And the better I know you, the better I happen to know, you know, guess what's going on. Now, some people have no capacity to do this at all if their bonds have been fragmented. They can't look at another person and figure out what's going on. Our capacity to understand humor is based on mind sight. So when I said to you a minute ago, I resent that, you laughed because you know I didn't mean that. How do you know I didn't mean that? Your mind sight told you that guy standing up there can't mean what he's saying right now, and that struck you all as funny because you, you saw the discrepancy. People without mind sight can't understand that kind of humor. They go, well, why don't you? <laughs> Their mind sight is impaired. Another thing that happens with mind sight is that uh, if you and remember, you do this, you learn this by modeling the mind sight that you're exposed to. So if the person that used to look at you was one of these who was distracted and they had all these other feelings that were fly, flying in from the past and unrelated to you, your little mind sight will imitate that and you'll find that all kinds of feelings from the past will leak in when you're looking at people. So you'll look at somebody and they'll have some reaction and it'll bring up some feeling and you'll attribute it to them, which had nothing to do with them to begin with, because you're not seeing them clearly. You're not in the present moment. It's only when your mindset is clear at tracking exactly what's going on with the other person that you actually have an idea what's going on with them. And so mindset is a very important thing and to think it develops at six months of age is kind of the amazement to me. By that time, infants can look at you and understand that there is a mind behind the face looking at me and I can understand what's going on with that. Part of that leads us to the fact that by one year of age children have learned how to put a fake emotion on their face because they know that the face looking at them doesn't want to see what they already are feeling. Well, this theory of self-centered mindset is very important. Joy means that someone is glad to be with me. A return to joy circuit is how I experience a painful or unpleasant emotion and get back from there to where people are glad to be with me. For instance, if I get angry at you for smiling at me so much and you get angry back at me, how do we get back to being glad to be together? That's a return to joy circuit. It's actually a neurological component of the brain. And those who have never experienced it have no neurological basis on which to understand or actually do this. If you were to ask me a calculus question, I have no brain circuit with which to process that. And so we would not have an answer because I simply wouldn't know what you're talking about. The same way if there's no return to joy circuit, it's impossible for me to understand how we get back to being glad to be together from an emotion which there has not been this experience of returning to joy. Uh, these grow between 12 and 18 months of age and we'll talk about the development of that a lot uh, later on, and uh, terror centers in it. And so the little child who has learned between 12 months of age and 15 months of age how to return to joy from fear and anger has this interesting thing happen to them. Right at the age of, of the limbic system wiring together, it's like the power drive kicks in on rage and fear.
Whereas up to now, they just sort of felt a little angry and afraid. At this point, they really feel it. Their whole nervous system kicks in with enormous power. And a child who already knows how to regulate and return to joy from fear and anger can manage somehow the supercharged anger and fear. Otherwise, you get these terrible twos where children run into terrible temper tantrums and rages and they become terribly afraid at night and you get night terrors and those kinds of aspects because they can't return to joy. They can't figure out how to be relational human beings now that the power is kicked on. Very important to have the training before you turn the power on. It's sort of like, you know, you want to try driving in a simulator before you get into a race car. Well, the children who haven't had the driving in the simulator and learning to deal with the low-level emotions real trouble when those big ones kick in because if their parents weren't glad to be with them before they sure are not going to be glad to be with them now and all you can then to begin to do is try to suppress that instead of teaching people how to act like themselves under those conditions so whichever feeling you felt you are a different person but all of the parts of the brain that have returned to joy circuits in them by the time that the right orbital prefrontal cortex tries to grow a return to joy a joy ring get wired into being one human being. And so the ones that have returned to joy all become part of you. And the ones that get left out uh, act like not you. And these are the people we now call moody. They get into a mood, and when they're in that mood, you better watch out because they don't act like their usual selves. That emotional center is sitting out there by itself, no return to joy. And so when they get into anger or fear, whatever it is, they act like a different person because their brain hasn't configured that by the return to joy. That happens at uh, 18 months of age. And finally, as all this is growing on, we have the use it or lose it removes whatever part you haven't used. So even though there might have been a circuit growing down there to return you to joy from anger, if it wasn't used, the brain snips that off. And so then even the capacity to have it sitting around waiting to be activated isn't there. Well, what happens with uh, God when we think about all of this? I'm going to get a drink of water. Uh, that has lots of different truths to it. I'm only going to talk about it from the point of view of your nervous system. Your capacity to return to joy to deal with any one of these negative emotions is limited by how much joy strength you have. So it is quite literally true as a nervous system level individual, your level of joy determines the level of your strength. And I'm not saying that's all that verse is about. I'm saying that there's a physical parallel to that verse that, in terms of us as human beings, is definitely important. Is joy reflected in God's voice and face? Well, we have Acts sound associated with joy and countenance, the light of your countenance. These are the two things that a child's nervous system responds to in terms of to produce joy. I might add at this point, it is also the two things that the adult nervous system responds to to produce joy. So if we want to have joy, it comes from these two sources. And here we clearly have God communicating to people that way. Is it any surprise then that we who are made in his image communicate joy in the same ways, by the joyful sounds and the light of our countenance? Then this blessing which was to be said over the people of Israel Three the area of returning to joy, there's a few scriptures to refer you to, and I'm just giving you just the slightest flavor of what you could find if you want to look this up in scripture. Re weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. We have a return to joy theme there. 
in Psalm 35. They that sow in tears shall reap we in have joy. returns to joy promised to the people of God from a whole variety of unpleasantness or negative feelings. So the pathway back to joy is a pathway that God is quite used to leading his people. Jesus himself had a lot to say about joy. We already pointed out in the soundbite section that uh, the earliest feeling recorded in scripture I, is very joy. impressed by the fact that Jesus gives that as the reason for his teaching. Uh, this is not incidental, but this is why he taught what he did was that he thought that this would be something which would provide us with joy. This makes sense to me if we are essentially creatures of joy, if joy is where we are to live and joy is what are we are to be about, that his teaching would be to bring us to the point of being the kinds of creatures he created us to be. It ought to be a pathway back to joy, what our nervous system tells us is correct. And here we have Jesus saying, yes, I came here to teach you how to be creatures of joy. Now, this involves far more than our nervous system, you understand. But I'm talking about the nervous system aspect of it. Even at that level, you want to get down to the basic biology of us. We are still creatures of joy. How much more so our spirits and souls. Jesus himself went through this difficult time, and his return to joy was his objective. But it also lets us know that the strength that brought him through it was his joy. And so we find that not only was he headed towards joy, but joy what was what enabled him to suffer. This, I believe, if we take nothing else out of it, for this conference we're talking about suffering, ought to be a central point. That joy is what enables us to suffer. And joy, as far as our nervous system is concerned, means someone is glad to be with me. Well, let me make this kind of more fun for you now, I hope. Talked about a lot of facts. We've come up with a little analogy that um, lets me think about this in a way that makes it workable. I, I discovered this and worked on it with the help of a lot of my friends who I told this story to over and over again, and they'd scratch their head and you say, you mean it's like this? And Oh, yeah. And so I, with all of those people helping me, I've, I've come up with this this analogy starting with those shore tapes that I stopped and went through word by word. And so what we first began to think about when thinking about joy as our natural state was what it was like to go camping. And when you go camping, some of you may have gone camping, taking your family's camping. First thing you do is you go and set up camp. And this is where we are and this is where we live. As far as our nervous system is concerned, joy is where we are and where we live. Our, our camp, our home, the place where we're we, designed we to want to be back in joy by the end of the day. Anyone who goes to sleep still angry or upset is asking for trouble from their nervous system. It was designed to rest in a state of joy, not in a state of upset. Your stress will go enormously up, as we'll see in a bit, if you're not in a state of joy. It's also where we want others to be. If you've ever been camping and somebody was missing from camp, they weren't there. They didn't get home. It's getting dark. They're not in. There is no joy in camp, is there? We want everybody in joy camp by the end of the day. We want everybody in joy camp 
by the end of our interactions. We want everybody in joy camp by the end of our service. We want everybody in joy camp by the end of our board meeting. We want everybody in joy camp by the end of our family interaction. We want everybody in joy camp every time we have to, something to do with other people. If someone isn't there, we're not happy. As someone once said, a parent is only as happy as their most unhappy child. We want everybody back in joy camp. It's our natural state. Well, outside of joy camp this is kind joy of face-to-face -face communication is what helps them to climb joy mountain. But initially, they have just a few nerves to do it with, just very little nervous structure. So very quickly, they get to the top of their capacity to feel joy. And when they reach that state, it's very much like someone was tickling you. And when they tickle you too much, you can't stand it anymore. You feel overwhelmed, like you have to have this stop right, right now. It's not funny anymore. That's what it feels like when a child exceeds their capacity for joy. So a child who, who's gotten as much joy as they can stand will suddenly look away from the parent. They'll disconnect eye contact. And if the parent is responsive, they'll disconnect eye contact too until the child looks back and is ready to climb again. And most of us have tried to take a child through something and they get tired and they stop and you have to wait till they're ready and then you start climbing again. And by continuing to slightly exceed their boundaries and their capacity, you stretch their capacity for joy. So every cycle in uh, stimulates more nerve cell activity. It's a little bit, if you could watch the nerves inside, like uh, springtime uh, uh, blossoms on a, on a tree. I have an apricot tree and in the spring it just throws out a million of these wonderful blossoms far more than you could ever have apricots. And then the ones that aren't used are dropped off. Well, it's the same way. Your nervous system will throw out all of these nerve endings in response to joy. Spring is here and the ones that are used will be, will be incorporated and the ones that aren't drop off. And it's springtime in the brain. Joy is growing. It is growing and, and each time the per child's capacity is larger and larger until eventually they reach the limits of their nervous system. This is as much joy as a human being can stand. It's as much as they can experience using their little nervous system. This is the height of joy. This is their joy strength. And they do that by working out on joy mountains from three months of age up until 12 months of age. Those are cru crucial, crucial years, years, months, to develop joy strength. Then at um, 12 months of age, a good mother will begin to intentionally make their child feel bad. They will actually respond in a different way than joyful to the child. Let's say that the child uh, who is used to seeing mommy smile at them every time they're around has gone exploring and they managed to get their hand down inside their diaper and discovered something warm and squishy in there. And they bring that out to show mommy and say a wonderful discovery they've made. And mommy, instead of going, oh, honey, I'm so glad, to see registers something on their face other than joy. Disgust in this case. <laughs> Interesting thing about this part of the brain, the right orbital prefrontal cortex is directly wired to the right side, of, uh, the, to the left side of your face. And it will authentically put on the left side of your face whatever feeling you are experiencing. It can't be faked. So the authentic feeling that you experience will be a, a instantly or almost instantaneously expressed on your face. It registers through the way the eyes line up right on the right hemisphere of the child who immediately knows mommy is not glad to be with me. And the feeling they experience when someone is not glad to be with you is a feeling we call shame. I just want to hide and disappear from those eyes that aren't glad to see me. And the mother seeing shame on the child's face 
will then tune into the child's shame. As she's tracking the child, her face will then show shame. Oh, you feel shame. And by registering that shame, the child realizes someone has recognized where they are. They're no longer in joy camp. They are now in some pit off the side of the mountain. And they need to be brought back to joy camp. And when someone synchronizes their face with them and says, I will feel that emotion to you. And even though we both feel shame now, I kind of feel shame. Mother says, maybe because I looked so disgusted at you a minute ago. And I didn't want to really make you feel all that shamed. But I'll get us back to where we're glad to be together. And so the mother is showing the child how to manage this feeling of shame, cleans the child up, and pretty soon they're back to joy again. They're glad to be together. And what did the child learn? They tracked the mother's brain all the way along from feeling disgust to shame and all the way back to joy. Now there's an early path back to joy. And by repeating this many times, the child learns that, oh, even when we have shame, there's a way back to joy. Someone will want to be with me. They will join me in that experience. And they will have as much strength to get back to shame from shame as they developed climbing Joy Mountain. So let's say the shame is a real deep pit. If they only climbed a few feet on Joy Mountain, they'll only be able to climb a few feet in that, in that pit. And then they'll be overwhelmed and they'll just quit. Their brains will disconnect. And their minds will begin to try to solve a new problem. How do I keep from ever going there again? because there's no way back. And that's when you begin to have an established psychological disorder. Because people, instead of learning their way back to joy, now begin to figure out ways to not go to feeling. Because from that feeling, there's no way back. So it's dependent on two things. One is, I have the joy strength to climb out. And the second, there's someone to show me the path back. And when you've learned the path back from all the feelings, you now have the capacity to suffer that feeling at its full intensity and still act like yourself. Then it's possible that no matter what kind of suffering comes upon you, it will not in any way stop you from being the person that you were when you weren't suffering. And this is the, the sign of a mature mind. Well, if you ever take your kids camping, you know that when your child can get back from different places, you kind of sigh, uh, uh, just relief, you know. Now they can, they say, can I run down to the restroom? And you know if they're going to go down to the restroom, they'll actually find their way back. You won't have to, you know, keep them on a leash and follow them down there and back. They can do that. They go, can I go over and play by the rock? You can play by the rock. You can get back from there. That's fine. And we begin as a community, as a family, to feel a breath of relief when we know people can get back from these different feelings and back to joy. Oh, they're upset. Well, that's okay. They'll find their way back. They can do that. We can do that together. Got angry, so what's the big deal? We'll just, you know, we'll work things out real quickly here. I remember one time uh, I had somebody who always was terrified that I was going to get angry at them. They were someone I was counseling. And they would say to me, are you going to get mad? And I'd say to them, well, it's, yeah, I might, but what's the big deal? Uh, and they said, oh, because, you know, then I could never come back and see you. I said, oh, sure you could. You come back and see me. All I get mad all the time. It's, you know, not too remarkable. It's easy to make me mad. Well, after a few months, they began to think to themselves, uh, that's, that's intriguing. And so they asked me, well, what will make you mad? And I knew we were making progress then. I said, well, I told them what would make me mad. I'm not going to tell this crowd because there might be somebody here who, like them, wanted to try it. <laughs> and sure enough, they did. After a few weeks of this, they tried it. And, you know, I looked at them and I said, whoa, you know that makes me mad, don't you? Yeah. He said, well, why don't we 
Come on in, we'll talk about that. They're checking it out. And, you know, we did the same thing we would have done if I hadn't been mad. Uh, they were very intrigued by that. They had to try it out a few more times. Uh, <laughs> this learning curve business, I tell you, you got, it takes a while to develop nervous tissue by, re, you know, repeated trials. And at trials is the word there. Uh, <laughs> we, we grew a certainty. And one day, I, they did something that they knew made me mad. I said, that, that makes me mad. And they said to me, oh, I don't have time to talk about that today. I know that we'll, you'll be all right, and we'll talk about it tomorrow when I get a chance. I knew we were home then, you see, because they had a confidence of getting back to joy. They no longer even had to try it. They just knew, oh, we can get back from here. What's the big deal? And from that point on, camping with them was a whole lot better because there was no longer any fear of that particular problem. Um, this brings us back to... Um, what happens with people who don't have a road back from joy? And you get uh, basically three kinds of They'll often punish you if you take them to an emotion from which they don't have a return to joy. Uh, those of you who have been pastors or counselors have experienced that, I'm sure. The second, time is they, second thing is they do sidetracks. They go to some other feeling that does have a way back to joy. And so very often you will find that women... Uh, who are having some feeling from which they have no return to joy will go to sadness and they'll start crying because from sadness they know they have a way back to joy. Someone will want to be with them if they're crying. But if they're really mad at you, they won't tell you that they're mad at you because there's no return back to joy from there. Men, on the other hand, often do the opposite and they will go to mad from whatever feeling they're having or they'll go to sex because sex, they know how to think about being glad to be together. Well, it's not really entirely being glad to be together, but it's as close to it as you can get. It's another path back. And so men will very often go to some kind of sexual activity when they are, have no path back to joy from where they are right now. So they have sex to make up fights with it. It's okay to talk about that in a church place, isn't it? Because I think we know what happens there. Um, I might also talk about the other word that uh, we usually don't talk about in Christian circles while I'm right here, and that is that very often self-stimulation is an attempt to solve this problem. It's actually your attachment circuit is on and you don't have any way to attach. And so people who whose attachment circuit is blinking and they're not aware of how to attach will go and self-stimulate. It's trying to find another pathway back to joy and in the end, they feel very empty as a result of it because there was no meaningful attachment. And the other thing that can happen is that you can end up in one of those non-joy places. You can end up over the ditch or in the swamp and not get back for months. The normal amount of time that it should take to get back, recover from an emotion, is about 90 seconds. A healthy mind will return you to joy in about 90 seconds from wherever you are. People who can't often will stay depressed for months sometimes even years at a time because they don't know any way back to joy from the spot where they are. And so that's the other pattern that we can see. Avoidance, sidetracks, and extended disturbances. Ah, here we go. Next page. There are two ways to bond. Now that we understand these processes with, for joy, with we can somebody, begin to there's make nothing like smiling and saying, hey, I'm glad to be with you. 
Those are the signals that make someone respond by going, I'm glad to be with you too. And that kind of joy is contagious because one mind amplifies what the other one does. And six times per second, the signal grows. And in fact, in really closely growing uh, experiences, you can have a fully developed uh, emotion in under six seconds, and it can reach its full intensity in under 20. So you can reach the heights of joy in 20 seconds of this kind of amplifying the joy in someone else's face of being together. This is the foremost and most important way of bonding and building joy. Um, and it feels like falling in love. And I think for that very reason, it is rarely practiced by people uh, above the age of about 15. Because most of us have such nervous feelings about falling in love that if we even have a fleeting feeling about somebody that we're like falling in love with them, uh, and it's not our, our baby, our wife, or our grandchild, we have a tendency to really pull back from that real quickly. So often in church, there's very limited expressions of joy or being glad to be with each other because it might lead to uh, uh, bonding euphoria, uh, which, which scares us. And if we do not know how to act like ourselves in the presence of bonding euphoria, it's right that it should scare us. But it's only when we are with people who know how to act like themselves in the presence of bonding euphoria that we can actually build a joyful church. So uh, this is, again, a road that's to be led by the very mature who show the rest of us how to live that way. And it's only safe in the presence of the very mature. And I might also add, if the third face in your bond in your mind is not the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's also no other way, you, no way that it's safe to go in this particular path of joy. But, but he is that joyful to be with us that he actually falls in love with us, to use our, our Western term, blanket, to keep them warm. Uh, being a little of the Norwegian extraction myself, I like the thermostat set lower than some people do, so this is a more common problem than you might expect. <clears throat> but it's a way of bonding. Smell is another way. Uh, the funny story on this is that a number of, I've had two people now who um, uh, had not bonded with anyone in their life and was part of counseling began to bond with me. Both of them went out on their own without saying anything and located the brand of deodorant that I use by going through the grocery shelves and smelling one after another until they found the one that had the same smell that I did. Which isn't as easy as you might think because I used a little known generic brand from just one grocery store. They found the right grocery store, the right generic brand, the right fragrance of that one that I was using just by going around and, and smell. I didn't know I had a smell. <laughs> I would prefer to still stay in that point, point of my, myself right now. But sheepishly, at one point or another, they pulled it out and they asked me, is this the brand that you use? <laughs> and I was shocked on both occasions that they had gotten it right. And then, then they sheepishly said, I, I, I use that from time to time. Or I, one of them said, I keep it under my pillow. Uh, and this is, well, it both made me nervous and profoundly humble because that kind of responsibility is not one that I should care to enter into lightly. And perhaps I'd entered it into a little too lightly already. I, I was not really paying attention to the fact that somebody might actually be trying to become like me and hook up to me because I was sort of thinking this as one more person I was going to see that day. And really, to tell the truth, these are some of the more annoying people I was working with. Well, they are, because they don't know how to attach to another person, and their mind sight is way off. 
and they had a very poor idea of what I was thinking and generally got it wrong. And, and to me, that feels like someone is falsely accusing me of all sorts of stuff, which isn't any fun to be around, you see. But they are the, precisely the ones that need this sort of thing. Well, food. How about food? Well, it occurred to me that the number one activity uh, of the Christian faith involves around a meal. <laughs> food might have something to do with bonding and attachment. And it has to be the right food, doesn't it? And we're very par particular about that because it becomes a bonding language. So we don't serve orange juice and uh, Oreos for communion because of the language of that bond is very specific. Well, it can also be uh, done by um, uh, things that incorporate these. For instance, I, I have little uh, teddy bears in my office. And in fact, uh, in my briefcase with me, and I often put them up here on, my, on the podium, I have a couple of teddy bears that people have given me over the year that I, years that I bring with me. They're a symbol of the bond. I give people teddy bears to hold sometimes when they need someone to hold on to uh, as while, while they're going through their counseling or their pain. Um, it's also done by telling stories, and the stories that we tell are the stories of you. So when you can tell somebody the stories of them, you remember about them. Uh, every once in a while, you, you know, someone will come along, and they haven't been in for a while, and I'll, if I say to them something so simple as, you know, well, how's your dog doing now because your dog was sick the last time you came in? The fact that I remembered that they had a dog and they were worried about it seems to make a huge difference to them. Because it's a story about them. You remembered something about me. I remembered one woman uh, after, uh, she was uh, an assistant of mine actually that I was training. And after about three weeks she said, I'm closer to you than anyone I've ever met in my life, which astounded me because we met one hour a week and talked about cases. And I said, well, why is that? She said, because you remember from one week to the next what we talked about the time before. My dad was an alcoholic. I'd, he'd love to have me talk to him in the night, but by the next morning when he was sober, he couldn't remember a word I said to him. And just the fact that I could remember from week to week was something that made her feel so connected with me. I could tell her the story of her from just the week before. Simple story, because it was, you know, which cases she brought in. I'd, I'd be uh, amazed that that could have that, that effect. But are we not to remember things? Are we not to tell the story? Do we not do this in remembrance of him? And when we do, do we not tell the story? When we go out and when we come in, when we enter the door, and when we go out and when we're walking down the road, are we not to be telling the stories? And these stories are the ones that say, I remember who we are. I remember who you are. I remember the story of how we came to be here. These are the stories that build our bonds. Um, many people like to listen to my tapes. And... Uh, Occasionally, I've had a few people who call up and listen to my answer machine because they say they just want to hear the sound of my voice. They're in a difficult time, and they just want to hear the sound of my voice. I've had a number of times when I've read stories to people in the office and just taped them, and they take the stories home and listen to them when they want to hear a voice that was glad to be with them, to remind them that there was once joy and there would be a road back. Uh, singing is the one way that you can actually reach the right hemisphere. So uh, it won't listen to words, but it will listen to singing. So if you want to actually communicate using words to the right hemisphere, sing them. And so singing songs of love, I think, are part of our faith. They're part of relationship. 
They're part of things that I urge all parents to do with their children to begin to sing with them. And I uh, often make up silly songs just as I'm going along with my kids. And they, they love to hear these silly songs uh, because they're the songs of them. They're songs that say, I'm glad to be with you. And some of you are thinking now about Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst. Yeah. I must have it right. Dr. Dickinson says so. Here. Yeah. We just bonded, he says. <laughs> See, I'm learning to repeat what they say. Okay. Now, I ha uh, dogs are another way to build joy. I had one person who was so unpleasant that no one could really hardly stand to be with them. And they got a dog. Uh, then that dog just wagged itself silly every time they came home. And within months of having this dog, their capacity for joy had begun to grow. Because this dog, uh, who by the way, dogs also lack an orbital prefrontal cortex, was able to <laughs> not care about any mind sight and whether this person would look glad to see them or not. It was just, here they are, I'm bonded, let's go. And this very deficit allowed them to begin to grow a sense of joy with, the, with, with this person that eventually transformed their ability to have joyful relationships with other people. I had another person uh, who um, was ritually abused by Satanists as an infant. Now some of you uh, are aware of the big fight that sometimes goes on about these memories. This is a different sort of a case because in this case we had all the documentation from the social workers from their infancy documenting that their parents had indeed been Satanists and they had been abused physically and ritually as children and taken out of the home. The person themselves had no memory of it during the time that I was working with them. So here they were adolescents who could not remember that they'd been ritually abused but we knew of the case because we had the, the documentation. Well they had very little sense of joy. But what they could respond to, oh, and by the way, they were in and out of the hospital about every three months. What they could respond to, though, were babies and old people. Babies smiled to see them, old people smiled to see them. And by making sure that they had experiences at least once a day with some babies or old people in which they could just be glad to be together, they no longer were, had to go back to the hospital from that point on. It stabilized their minds because they were beginning to develop joy that had been missing there from the beginning. Well, the other final way of building joy, of being glad this to be with be very good for you. And that's what happened with the lady who had the dog. Um, once she learned this, she began to jumpstart other people. She had some joy, she began to smile with others, and pretty soon this changed her whole social environment around her. The second way to bond is by returning to joy camp. Joy means someone's glad to be with me. Now the first thing that seems clear to me is that the Lord Jesus was someone who was glad to be with us in our troubles, in our problems. He was a man who was acquainted with grief. And so he did not really mind, in that sense, to share our griefs with us. And in doing that, he conveyed to us the message that I'm glad to be with you in your trouble 
and I will teach you how to act like yourself in that trouble so that you can learn to act like the person you are meant to be. And that is the returning to joy. We experience this in many different ways. For instance, uh, when I lived here in the Midwest, we used to have things they called tornadoes. And when they would, they still have them here? Yeah, they, that, they still have them here, I hope not this time of year. But when there would be one of those things uh, forecast or coming close to our house, we would all get down in the basement. And we were not happy till everyone was in the basement. That's another analogy I thought of using instead of joy camp. But we all wanted to be together. And when we were down there holding on to each other, if we were all there, there was no one that we would rather be with. We were glad to be together. Not because we were glad to be in the tornado thing, just as soon as passed that up, but because here were people we were generally glad to be with in our troubles. And if you're a parent, you know that if your child is in trouble, there's no place you want to be other than wherever they are to be with them in that trouble. It may even be that you can't do anything to get them out of that trouble, but you still want to be there with them. Uh, remember one time with uh, my, my son had uh, too much earwax. And so we had to take him in, and the nurses had to clean the earwax out with big syringes and all kinds of stuff like that. He hated it. And he's uh, less than a year old, so he really didn't understand the procedure. And he was crying, and he was across the, uh, the room from me. And he was crying, and he's looking up at me with his big tears in his eyes, like, Daddy, why are you letting them do this to me? And it was about all I could stand to do to not just run across the room, knock the nurse over, and, and pull him, because I wanted to be with him in his trouble. And the faster I got there, the better I liked it. Until eventually I said, I'll hold him while you do that, because I wanted to be with him in his trouble. There was nothing I could do about his trouble. I couldn't make his earwax go away, but I had to be there with him, you see. That is joy, being with somebody in their trouble, genuinely sharing it with you. Now here's the interesting thing. I also took life-saving. And in life-saving, one of the things that they taught us to do was how to throw those, those uh, life-saver loops out to people. And they taught us a very important principle in, in this, and you might want to take note here, that unless we threw it to where the person was, it didn't do them any good. <laughs> very profound principle. We had to practice this over and over again. But it's very much the same in terms of returning someone to joy. If you don't go to where they are, you haven't returned them to joy. So if you want to pretend that their troubles are less than they are, that they're not as upset as they are, it's like throwing that life ring halfway out because you don't want them to be as far out in the lake as they are. It's only the person who genuinely goes to where the other person is and says, I will join you in this problem, the very one that you have, not the one I wish you had, or the one I'd prefer you to have, or the one that if you had that one wouldn't bother me as much. I go to join you in exactly the one you have. That is the person who can bring you to joy. And so it's very essential as we begin to think of any type of bonding in this form that we think with ourselves that we go to join the person exactly where they are. That's easy to think about in theory, but if you're talking about somebody who has a same-sex attraction, someone who has suicidal feelings, someone who wants to self-mutilate, someone who wants to destroy somebody else, it is not as easy as it would first sound to go to join them in exactly the trouble that they have, because many of us would be rather prefer to think of it as a simpler problem than that, as a less upsetting situation than the one they have. Uh, a less distraught place. But it's only those who join them right where they are and show them how to be themselves 
how to have a relationship in the middle of that that are actually able to help them. That's the basis of what we're going to be talking about with counselors when we're talking about dealing with borderline. It's how to exactly throw that lifesaver ring to exactly where the person is and help them get back to joy from there, from some of the most upset feelings a human being is capable of feeling. And so now those of you who are wondering what that's like if you were going to not go there, you know basically the substance of the lecture. You won't get left out, you just won't be told you know, all the gory details that go with that, which would upset somebody. And if you don't know how to get back from, to joy from there, now you know why I don't want to leave you out there. Because that's very unkind, un, un it seems to me, to send somebody some feeling. And in a conference like this, there's no way that you're going to track your way back to joy. And we have people running off to feeling stuck. And we knew it would. So please don't come. And I'll be glad to see you afterwards. Well, you can only get back from emotions that are no larger than the amount of joy that you have. So your climbing strength determines how much strength you have. Another way to think about that that I've talked about is having a joy bucket. Suppose we talked about it as the capacity to feel joy. It was like a, you know, a physical shape. If you had a, like a one cup capacity for joy, that's one cup of sorrow is how much you could carry. If you had a one gallon bucket, of joy, you could carry a gallon's worth of terror or fear or rage or anything else and still manage to act like yourself because as soon as the negative feeling exceeds your capacity for joy, your mind just crumples. You no longer are able to act like yourself even if you had a guide. Acting like yourself is dependent on the right orbital prefrontal cortex under those conditions because it takes over. When you get an unpleasant, intense emotion, the right orbital prefrontal cortex takes over and it runs tapes. It just does whatever it saw being done at that time. And that's why we need to imitate somebody in order to learn how to do these things. If we were to um, think of our conscious awareness as a flashlight, you realize if you have a flashlight, you can shine at different places, and it only lights up that little thing that you're shining at. So. As you're talking here, a lot of your awareness, your conscious awareness is focused on me and what I'm saying. But if I say to you, uh, your feet's starting to get tired, uh, if, you know, wherever they are right now, your focus has changed. Suddenly you're thinking about your feet and you're saying, well, yeah, they're getting hot or they're getting cold or something like that. Uh, because you can shift that focus around. Well, people in distress... Uh, who do not know how to act like themselves will focus their attention on whatever is distressing them. So let's say a lion walked into the room right now. Most of you would lose total interest in me and what I had to say, and you'd be focused on the lion because it would be what would be distressing you. I likewise would be focusing on the lion, and my, my right orbital prefrontal cortex would be doing something like trying to climb on the podium or on top of the speaker right there, thinking, climb, climb, climb. That's all I can think of. But if I was actually a lion tamer, I would begin to think of all the things I prefer to do when there's a lion in the room and probably wouldn't be climbing on top of the speaker. I don't know what it would be because I have no such tapes in my mind. But they would be thinking of all the ways that they liked acting around lions 
and uh, began to do that. And they'd probably say to themselves something like, these people are mighty fortunate that I am here today because they have no idea what to do with a lion. And so they might even shout instructions to us on how to act like it would be like us to act in the presence of a lion, you see. Our flashlight would be on that. And it's only as the flashlight is returned to us that we begin to learn how to act like ourselves. So in the presence of strong emotion, if you are afraid and you're in the boat and it's sinking and you're bailing as hard as you can, your flashlight of attention might be on the storm. And it's only as the flashlight of attention is put back on you and let's say, you know, some sleepy voice from the back of the boat says, oh, you little face, you know, let, let's have a look at you. You are really the problem here, not the storm. Let, let's have a look inside of you. You've got little faith and there's a lot of fear going on. What you ought to do in the presence of that fear is actually have a lot of faith. Well, that would that be, what like, be what's like me to do. I had never thought of that before. I was just thinking I ought to wake you up because maybe you ought to bail too. <laughs> Bailing is the only thing on my mind. That's uh, the only tape I had to run, you see. You see how that changes the focus of attention. Someone is there who can teach you how to act like yourself in the presence of a storm. You have all this terror. You didn't know what to do. And this is what God and his people, the mature ones, always do. They put the attention back on you and they say, yes, I know you're angry. What would it be like you to do when you're angry? You know what Jesus did when he was angry? One place in scripture it says that he was furious. No, it wasn't with the money changers in the temple. That doesn't say anything about how he felt. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't angry. It was when there was a man with a withered hand. And he was uh, in the synagogue on Sunday. And he looked around at everybody and it said he became furious. <clears throat> And he was so furious that he healed the man. Why? It's like him to do that. Suppose the crowd had been scary and he'd been scared. What would he have done? Would have healed the man. Suppose they were full of faith and he would have been just joyful as could be to look at all of those people. What would he have done? Oh, we would have healed the man. Because it was like him to do that. And so he remembered who he was and what he'd come there to do, even though he was furious. It's interesting enough that that word for anger is so severe that that same word is used by Paul on his list of sins. That we are not to feel that furious. Craftsmanship, redeemed by Christ in order to do the good works for which you were created, or the good works that were created for you. In other words, if you were acting like yourselves, you would be doing good works. And when Jesus returns a flashlight on us and he says, what is it like you to do, those who have been redeemed and called by him and renewed it's like you to produce good works and so in the middle of any emotion or feeling those of us who know what it's like us to do would be doing the works that God ordained for us to do and we sin when we stop doing that we miss the mark we stop acting like ourselves we start acting like something less than the princes and princesses in the kingdom of God that we are finally the um, way to uh, get back to joy is uh, one that's littered with singing because singing is the only kind of message in words that will reach the right orbital prefrontal cortex and so there's many instructions in scripture about singing and the, and returning ourselves to joy the, the uh, response joy to our bonds we can say that the strength of our bonds with others determines the amount of joy we have, which determines the amount of suffering that we can endure and still act like ourselves. When we uh, grow 
and develop this maturity, we do it in the presence of love bonds with us, which means that the interactions that we have with other people are based on love and their care for us, not in us being afraid of them. Satan and his kingdom is based on fear, and unhealthy family interactions are based on fear. And that's the main way in which people motivate each other. But in a healthy uh, Christian family, the relationships are based on love. That's why Peter says that Jesus never threatened anyone, neither should we. The relationships are not to be based on fear. We mature in six stages that I'm going to look at real briefly here. They are uh, an unborn stage, and if you want to have more details on these stages because they're important to how we, we should grow, you can find them in the stages of a man's life, and this is also on the literature table back there. Um, the unborn stage, all of these interactions, if they are building the identities that God has in mind for us, are based on joyful, loving interactions with each other as the main building block. So when we, there's no way that you can go back to a painful memory and resolve it. They simply haven't got a big enough joy bucket. So your first task becomes to build joy. Teaching joy is the goal. I had one, one person who when they learned that they were a creature of joy and that building joy was important, they went from spending uh, probably two to three days in bed a week just out of so depressed that they couldn't work to beginning to build joyful interactions with others and within about a year they were teaching in a classroom which their main goal in the classroom was to build a joyful relationship with all the children in which they were known appreciated and they found learning to be a part of a joyful relationship with others so they were soon had 20 little sources of joy to respond to and grow and to overcome the problems that not only the teacher but the children brought to that environment. Since that time they haven't missed a day of work in over two years. So just knowing that joy is the objective can be a powerful, powerful tool. Um, and so it's no longer for some of us particularly in the professional counseling ministry, there's no professional way to approach that, is there? You can't professionally be glad to be with somebody. Well, you can try to fake it, but as I told you before, the right orbital prefrontal cortex is not into that stuff. So what it puts on your face is not joy. Oh, you can cover it up, and you can also uh, put a different message using your left hemisphere on the right side of your face, so you can have a fake message over here and the true message over here, and you know, you'll fool some people, but you won't build joy. So when we come to how do we use this in discipleship, For the first time, I think perhaps that you might have thought about it, part of what you're doing in building and discipling someone in Jesus Christ is you're building up their brain through an experience of joy. You're developing something in their mind that's never grown there before. We are also helping people restore their brains, part of their minds, through joy. And some of this you'll find in the, actually this list that you have in front of you has come out of the life model here, which is the counseling model that we've developed at our center, uh, also at the book table. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it's a rather simple list. Then, to return us to the simple basics. Our bonding with God is based on joy. As far as our human bodies and experiences are concerned, what attaches us to God is experiences of joy. The strength of our bond with God is directly linked to our joy in being with him, which flows entirely from his joy in being with us. And it's what we experience also when he is joyful to be with us in the middle of our sin and dysfunction and ugliness and everything in our life. And God, Jesus never had a problem with anybody who let God into those troubled parts of their lives. His whole bad mood about some people is reserved to those who will not let him be with them. He came unto his own and his own would not receive him. He wanted to be with us. That's the basis of our relationship. That's the strength on which everything else we've, goes. We have often overlooked that. I, in fact, overlook that regularly almost every time I get together with the church because my first reaction to them is rarely one of joy. I forget that all the time. How convenient. But the church is to be about joy and being glad to be together. Again, just for being together and for being together in e with the times of trouble. Bonding with the, return, with, the, with the wounded is based on joining them in their trouble and returning them to joy. They will be as glad to be with us as we are glad to be with them in their troubles. And raising God's children to maturity through the steps that I just outlined there is also based on joy because it requires being attuned to who they are and where they are right now and what is going on with them that lets us interact with them in a way that says, I see who you are, I'm glad to be with you, I will teach you how to act like those of us who are children of God act. And in doing that, we help each other to grow into maturity with the more mature leading the less mature along the way. Well, I'm very glad in my own life that what I have experienced as an individual, what I've experienced in my salvation, what I've experienced from studying neuroscience and the Bible have suddenly converged for me into one theme which I can hold on to, which to me unifies it all. And that is that I am above all things a creature of joy. And that the great God and creator is the one who above all is the most joyful to be with me. And he has created a people to gather around me that will be glad to be with me and I with them so that we may make an example to this to all the people who we will join in their troubles and draw them into the middle of this kingdom. To me that unifies all of things whether healing, evangelism, discipleship, family life, raising children, healing, uh, deliverance, all into one theme, the return to joy and the building the joy of the kingdom of the great king. Thanks for being with me here today.